0: Hey everybody, welcome to season two of The Brown Print with me, Carrie Champion. And that's right, I said season two, because this time around, there's a twist on The Brown Print. Each week I'll bring you conversations with some really accomplished people, folks you've seen, maybe some folks you've never heard of before, but they always have one thing in common, how they were able to come back. I want you to be inspired. I want you to see people who are just like me and you, and they figured it out. I hope they act as a guide. I hope you feel as if you're being mentored. I hope in fact that you feel like you're getting direction. Welcome to season two of The Brown Print, The Comeback.
1: On January 21st, 1997, I was charged with being an accomplice to a murder. At trial, the alleged shooter had all of the charges dismissed against him. But yet I was convicted, a super predator, in the flesh and sentenced under the accomplice liability doctrine to two indeterminate life sentences. We were just kids, yet the village failed to raise us. Instead of pouring love into us, they just threw us into cages. He's an
0: artist. He's a speaker. He's an author. He was also sentenced to life. These are things that are very unusual, and Helene Flowers is just that type of guy. He found himself in very dangerous situations when he was a young kid, but before being sentenced to two life sentences at the age of 16, he knew there was something more for him. He found that arts could change his life. 22 years and two months into serving his prison sentence, he was released in March of 2019, and he quickly became one of the most prolific artists that we have today. His works in top galleries across the country, next to artists such as Warhol, Basquiat, and Damon Hurst. Along with his visual art, he's a TEDx speaker, a poet, and a spoken word performer, using his newfound notoriety to help those who are incarcerated, but most importantly, letting other people know that you do not have to be the bad decisions you've made. This is such a special brown print. In fact, it is the essence of what brown print is. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Helene Flowers. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you for doing this. And um, just by way of background, your story for me is absolutely amazing in terms of uh, being incarcerated growing up in a neighborhood that probably perhaps led itself to you to find more trouble and you were able to turn it around so talk to me about the beginning when you were I think maybe in your teens did you got tried as an adult for murder but how do
1: we lead up to that for me um definitely just growing up in the 80s and being influenced and at that time I had no awareness like Michael Milken and all the stuff that was going on Wall Street and um, there, even the Reaganomics, the trickle-down economics. What, it wasn't trickling down into our community, but just like all of the the showboatness of it all, the, the flashiness and sh- seeing the drug dealers, you know, coming up as a kid and seeing a guy going from poor and not having nothing, the 80 Turbo Zs and Fila sweatsuits and Gucci sneakers and, um, and me being very, very academically inclined and very ambitious because like, you know, in DC, which I think a lot of people are aware of, um, we have a tale of two cities. We have extreme poverty and and extreme power. And um, I just happened to come up in the zip code with the extreme poverty. And I took my pre sats when I was 11. I scored really high. I, I was able to take some gifted and talented courses at Howard University when I was 11. And then at the age of 12, Just due to poverty, negative peer influence, and um, a lack of low self-esteem, I just started selling drugs to get the things that um, were considered cool. And also, I just wanted to buy my mother a house outside of the neighborhood, because you know people was getting shot every day, like literally every day in in my community. And I felt like I would die before I was 18. And the sad part about it is that I accepted the fate. Um, Once my dad left the house, took the responsibility to provide and protect the family, and I just, I had no mentors who were venture capitalists or mm-hmm. visual artists or stockbrokers. Only thing I had was drug dealers, and I had an extreme desperation to escape my neighborhood. You know, I just didn't want my mother to get killed. One of my little cousins got hit in the face with a straight bullet. Unfortunately, the only option that I saw at the age of 12 was selling drugs, so um, it was the right ambition, just the wrong um, application.
0: Yeah, the wrong conduit. I. It's interesting because we hear these stories, we've seen them. They make movies off of them, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you said ex- a "tale of two cities," extreme poverty and extreme power, and mm-hmm. I think that obviously separates the classes across the world. And we, and we can see it in every case. Twelve years old is a very young age to determine that it doesn't matter what my outcome looks like. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about this. This feeling of hopelessness that is a real. A real tangible feeling for people who grow up in extremely impoverished neighborhoods when you think your fate is ultimately, I'm going to die?
1: Um, just in the American culture, because I don't want to limit it to our subculture Correct. In, in, in the quote unquote black um, neighborhoods, we have a very uh, toxic, machismo uh, culture for males. And we're taught not to cry, um, we're taught to, to fight, yeah. we're taught to kill. If it's in the interest of the country, it's okay to kill. And I think the problem um, that happens is that we think that our children, our boys don't see this. So what it what it leads to is a mentality is that um, when I can't get my way, I will use force. So me just coming up in, in, in Washington, D.C. at the time, that it, it was the highest murder rate uh, per capita of any city in America and it had the highest incarceration rate of any city in the world. So you deal with that that dichotomy of the reality that you can lose your life any day. And you also deal with the reality that you can lose your civil liberties any day, just protecting your life. And I think in order for you to cope with that as a child, at that time, nobody was talking about counseling or therapy or trauma Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So what we do, what we did at that time to to cope is we engage in cognitive dissonance meaning that we we know that it exists, but we're engaged in a, in a mentality as if it doesn't, and we just, like, accept it mm-hmm. because we feel like the hopelessness comes and, like, I don't have the economics to change mm-hmm. it. I'm only 12, and the only thing that I see that I can do at the age of 12 to get the capital that I need in this capitalist structure to get out of this community is to mm-hmm. sell drugs. Even when you look at the... um, It's a clipping from of me at 16 in the Thug Life in D.C. documentary that we did when I was at the jail. And I'm conceptualizing to the warden what it looks like to do 30 years. And I'm like, well, if I do 30 years, I might as well just stay in prison because my mom would be dead. And you know I won't be able to have any kids. So, but if you look at it, it's just a 16 year old child mm-hmm. trying to conceptualize what does it look like to spend times two of the life that I have lived on earth in prison, and what does what does society have for me mm-hmm. after thirty years of being in here? So I I think that's kind of heavy for a child to conceptualize that. It's also you saying that society has no more use for you, right? Um, that's a
0: mentality that I know that is very common. Like I I don't belong, so what's the point? And for me, that's scary. But the beautiful part, and this by way of background, you know, at sixteen you get charged as an accomplice, as an adult, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous because you're a baby. You are a child. That is the harshest penalty, in my opinion, you can ever do and say, society is saying to you, you no longer matter. I'm charging you as an adult and I'm throwing, I'm throwing it away. You got how many years? How many years did they give you?
1: Uh, four, 40 years of life and 20 years of life.
0: I, this shit pisses me off so much. How were you able to turn that around, to turn that mentality around?
1: For me, um, definitely don't want to take away from the mentors. Um, Beginning first with my mom. Like I never saw my mother cry. And not to say that there's anything wrong with the libations and tears, but um, I needed her to show me that she was okay. For me to be okay, I I didn't have children at the time. My main concern has always been my mother. Because uh, my dad dealing, did instill in that to me as a 10 year old child when he left the home, which I believe was irresponsible of him to, you know, and thrust that you're the man of the house. You got to provide and protect for the family, you know, protect your mother, protect your brother, protect your sister. Like how I was able to make that switch was first and foremost, my mother, she loved me like the son. Mm. And like when I when I'm inspired to love, because a lot about my branding is about love. So the sun it shines, it gives its light those uh you know so many millions of miles away. Um, it doesn't care whether it's cloudy or rainy or sunny, whether it's North America, South America, Antarctica, Africa, Europe. The sun continues to give the love and the nurturing that we need to survive. Mm-hmm. And that's how my mother was for me when I was an academic genius, when I was a drug dealer when I was a juvenile lifer, when I made the switch as a as a convict to uh, 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 one who engaged with or embraced transcendent diversity, um, she was always that source of constant love for me and she never gave up on me. That is important for people to know um, because people have people in their lives and they don't love them throughout their phases and iterations. And then outside of her, I had real great mentors in prison. Like these guys um, were like Oxford scholars. Like once I got life, I saw like how everybody forgot about me. And for me, I always knew, I said, I'm not accepting this because I'm not guilty. And if I was guilty, I still wouldn't accept the fact that Mm -hmm. I'm going to die in prison of old age. So once you get life, you're at the bottom of a bottomless pit. All your girlfriends go away, all your friends, all of my friends got life as juvenile, so they were all inside with me. My family started to forget about me, so I said, well, hmm. this is what I have to learn the law, right? I have to learn the law, and I have to litigate, I can't rely on a lawyer. So I, I started that process, and then the mentors that I had in my life, who were giving me the books like Deepak Chopra, and Eckhart Tolle, and Thick Nhat Hanh, and Muhammad Ali, and Malcolm X, and Bruce Lee, all these different philosophies, um, what they were doing they were working on me because in life a lot of people think that you attract what you want but what i learned is that you attract what you are so if i wanted to attract a more positive outcome in my external environment i had to empower me and not the other way around when society where i thought i had to sell drugs and get these nikes and these sweatsuits and these cars for everybody to like me i had to empower and invest in me and once i had that that mentorship that guided me to the right literature and film and even music and poetry. Um, I just felt like I had nothing to lose, you know. And I think like when you put somebody in the corner, it's like I felt like some people gave up.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. That approach is, is unique. It is rare. When you get into a place, whether it's jail or not, but if you get into a place where you think people mentally, like if that's the mental space, people forget about me. Um, It's hard to pull yourself up if you feel like you're out here alone. There was something in you clearly, and you talk about the love that you have from your mother. It was something in you that was already instilled in you that just needed to be watered. and and There are people who were just feeding you in prison. Am Am I wrong for saying that prison changed your life? for good in a, in a more positive way?
1: I think that, um, even the streets, um, because it's like you deal with that polarity, the darkness of being a light and the light being the darkness. So I don't think that had I not come up in a city, um, where you had to use your mind to navigate Mm. to get to school without getting jumped or to get home without getting shot and killed. Um, and the grit that it takes as a twelve year old to make the decision to sell drugs in the murder capital of the world with the highest incarceration rate in the world, knowing that you risking being killed or going to prison for the rest of your life, coming up in that in that type of environment, you get a you get a grit, right, to survive and to win no matter what. So when a judge, when I'm looking at this judge, I remember a sentence and he said, you know, I know you probably thinking like this saves you. And that's what I was thinking, because I just was like, you're just another man. You're not a god. You're just another man that's trying to tell me that I'm a minister to society, that I'm a super predator, and that my life means nothing. But people have been telling me this all my life, but all my life I've been fighting to better my life. So just because I'm in a prison, I'm not going to allow this man-made system and, and ethic from this person in a, in a black robe to determine how I see myself. That is uncommon because we live in a world that encourages you to be everyone but yourself, and to live in fear. People can't mm-hmm. even show up in their real self without filters and things of that yeah. nature. So, um, but it takes an extreme, uh, extreme measure of love for oneself self and one's humanity to believe that you're still a human being in the environment that treats you like an animal, especially as a child. What I'm saying is, it's
0: to me. You're talking about it very, like in a way like, okay, so I just needed to be loved and that's, and I love myself. And you're saying it just like, not casually or cavalierly, but you're talking about, I mean, some severe mental work. It, It takes, it puts you in a space that very few people can come out of and we, and we see the numbers, but I hope there are more like you while you were in prison. Your story is you found a love for art. I can tell that. You read a lot and obviously your work is beautiful. Like we'll get, and this is the turning point. When did you realize that you were, and you probably knew all along you were highly intelligent as we talked about before you, before you started selling drugs at 12 years old. But when did you realize you had this gift of photo poetry?
1: Um, when the Third Life in DC documentary aired on HBO in like 98 and it won an Emmy Award, a lot of people started writing in particular, young ladies. To you. And, you know, yeah, to me, yeah. why well, I was impressed. Oh, so you had a and bunch you know, of girlfriends. You, you started getting a bunch of... Yeah. Yeah, I they was like,
0: what's up, what's up, what's, what's up, up, what's up? Right, <laughs> Your celebrity.
1: This before the internet. <laughs> Wait, you know. can I
0: say something? Yeah. just a side note because I'm silly and you don't know if you know that. I'm goofy too. Okay, good. I'm yeah. super silly. So I used to get these these and we used to sit because they were so beautiful i used to get these prison letters when i worked at espn like i had boyfriends and they'd be like carrie you know some more some more mail for you today and i was like "I was like Good talk that talk to me tell me how pretty i am i want to hear all about it so you're telling me the real rap is mm-hmm. you got these ladies trying to holler because you are a superstar and they were like okay i'm here to build you up okay so that means first of all i love this part because it's bringing me some light okay go on
1: <laughs> the greatest is george jackson said um because I was heavily impacted by his prison letters yeah. that he wrote, and me when I got sentenced and went to the prison um, at the age of seventeen, a guy he came to my cell was like, "Have you ever heard of George Jackson?" Because I used to rap, yeah, like, rap on the tier, and the guy was like, "Man, you're very intellectual the way you put your words. Have you heard of George Jackson?" I was like, "Is he some kind of Michael Jackson?" And he laughed, right, and, uh-huh. and and he gave me this book, Solidarity Brothers, and. Reading George Jackson prison letters and seeing how he was able to pull in people like Angela Davis into his life in prison to impact the world in the 60s and 70s, it gave me a hope. Like, oh, I can do something in prison Mm. with my mind that can impact the world. Because my story is a story of women loving, not to take nothing away from the men, but because the men loved on me too. But it was the women who were writing me letters, coming to see me, and I've started writing them poetry instead of rapping because the, I'm in prison now. So yeah. the older guys they don't they don't listen to rap music. Yeah, and they look, short, we listen to Harold Melvin <laughs> <and> Bruno, <laughs> the Whispers. <laughs> Shut up! Nobody want to hear this rap nonsense. Nobody want this rap. We listen to r but writing these, these these prison letters and this poetry. Yeah, And seeing how it was impacting the women, one of the women, like, you should write a book, a poetry. Like, you're very gifted with the way you compose your words. So that was, like, my first, you know, outside of rapping um, to really see, like, damn, I could put a book together with just poetry. And that was, like, really my introduction, I feel, outside of rap music to the fine arts, because they don't really try to consider rap as the fine arts, Mm -hmm. even though we do Mm -hmm. everything Mm -hmm. in our culture. But I had no idea of the status of poets in world history when I started writing poetry when I was 17, 18, and how the impact that poetry has on people, in particular women, Mm -hmm. and now how that influences the paintings, because I'm, I'm in tune with how I feel. And most men are what? We are discouraged to what? To not be emotional. Or to, to feel. not express. Right. Not to feel, to be numb. So if, if I express how I feel and if I'm being authentic, people say, oh, you're very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I just was being authentic. And I think that that is the catalyst to all transcendence of adversity. Amen. Uh, which makes the comeback, you know, better than the come up.
0: I, you, you speak in my language right now because I think and that goes for everybody. Like mm-hmm. the, the once you decide that vulnerability is a superpower, right. you are so, so aware of the world in which you live in and how you interact and how you move in these spaces and how you interact with people. So then you start writing poetry because Shoti was like, look, you- Shoti. Shoti, plural. Shorties. I'm sorry, I don't yeah. want to mess up <laughs> the game. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> now that you have this attention on you after the documentary- you start writing then when do you start painting
1: i didn't start painting until march 2020 during the quarantine never painted never wow. drew. in person i started a publishing publish company and i published 11 books so i've never been visually inclined until the quarantine do you know what you just
0: said do you hear that how
1: special is that how
0: significant is that cuz your work is everywhere
1: how I look at it is like, um, from, the, from the application process, when you study our history as people from Africa, we didn't have uh, letters that Europeans had. We express ourselves through graphics. One of my art collectors, she said, you, your paintings are infographics.
0: What do you mean by graphics? We express ourselves through graphics.
1: We didn't have a system like the Western world where they A, B, C, D, like when you look at our pyramids in Kemet, where they renamed to Egypt, our communication is through pictures. Okay. Right? So when you even look at the the youngsters today that's on the Instagram, the TikTok, they're literally recreating their ancestral genius through the hieroglyphics.
0: Yeah, like... Everything is visual. We're not writing it down. You're absolutely right. Okay. We
1: communicated through
0: sound, dance, and pictures. Which is why we have so much rhythm, which is why we move everything. This is why it speaks to our soul in a different way. Right.
1: So for me, once I was out of prison for one year, I yeah. felt like my soul was like opening up from 22 years of captivity. That part of my DNA... That artistic intellectual problems. Okay, you wrote you've written enough books and enough poetry. Now, visually express yourself, because I feel like I have a message. I don't believe like I'm my paints are everywhere because I'm just super tired on that person. I believe I'm literally chosen. I've been chosen. You like have can, been chosen. I, that is I've a been fact. Chosen with no ego attached to it. It's not me. So I've been chosen to deliver a message to show to show humanity what happens to children, what happens to human beings, and in spite of what we can become. And
0: what we can become. When people love and believe in you, and if you believe in yourself, the world is so endless. It is, It is. your opportunities are endless because it doesn't seem to me that you limited yourself. With that being said, I need to go back before we talk about you getting out in 2019 because mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm very clear on what what chosen looks like and what set apart looks like and why you were both of those things. So you helped right, or influenced it, rather, the Incarceration Reduction Amendment mm-hmm. Act, right? And I know that you, Kim Kardashian, worked with you in some capacity. I'm not necessarily here and there, there for that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. But the point is, how did you get involved with that act?
1: So what happened was um, through me starting a publishing company and um, publishing 11 books, what it did was it allowed me the opportunity to connect with people in in, in a visceral way outside of the walls, Um, because in prison, we don't have access to the internet or social media or smartphones. So the books were um, connecting me to individuals and organizations. So as people were becoming familiar with me and my story, they chose to make me a a poster boy for this law that they wanted to make, Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act, which I had been litigating in the courts for a decade before. So I was contacted by a legal organization in D.C. And it was like D.C. legislators are thinking about enacting a law, the Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act, which would allow anyone from D.C. who uh, was sentenced for a crime that happened under the age of 18 to uh, petition for resentencing and release after serving 20 years in prison. So keep in mind, they contacted me in 2016. I came in in 97. So I'm coming up on my 20 years. So the catch with the new law is that they're not making the law retroactive, so it will only apply to the people who get locked up today, and not the people who had already been in. Mm. So what I did was, because um, I had we had an email system in federal prison, I had uh, an assistant who's still my assistant today who would relay my messages for me. So I emailed the entire DC City Council and the mayor, sent them all a, le- a letter you know, detailing who I was, my position on why the law I think should be made retroactive. And I started to get responses from city councilmen, uh, in particular, the white ones. Mm -hmm. And they were telling me, we we just moved to the city recently. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even know that it was juveniles that got life in the 70s, 80s and 90s that were still incarcerated. Right. Mm -hmm. So then they was like, is there any way you can get out? Like they, I'm like, nah. through that, and, and I had an individual uh to go read my testimony at the public hearing for the law, um we was able to get the law uh amended and made retroactive and it and it actually, um no coincidence. it was it was enacted on April fourth, 2017, uh the day of Dr. King' assassination, and the history behind juveniles being sentenced under the law as adults in d c was as a result of the 68 King riots, where they said that black uh, youth in D.C. were attacking white citizens. Mm-hmm. That's why they made it easier for children in the district to be charged as adults. And, and that's how I got out. I, I got out two years later uh, after the law was enacted. So I had to wait a whole nother two years. That's a whole nother story. So I can could, I could imagine there's a time in which you're
0: extremely impatient and you're waiting and you're waiting and appealing. You can't sleep? You think it's coming?
1: No, you know it's coming. That's the worst part when you know it's coming. So
0: then you get out of jail in 2019. Um, March, tell me about when you get the call and you leave.
1: So I went to court March 15th and my judge granted my motion and she was going to release me in April, but the city council were, were in the process of amending the IRA law to apply to those under the age of 25 instead of under, under the age of 18. It was like six days. I just couldn't sleep. I was so anxious to get out. And I just remember like waiting in the bullpen to get out on March 21st. And it was this, it was a um, a lady that was waiting to get released. She had been in jail for one day. Mm. And she was arguing with the guards about she didn't have a ride. And I had, like, cameras out there waiting on me. And I'm like, hey, look, I'll pay for you to get a ride. Like, please, I I can't dress out because... You got to dress out. You a female. So they're not. What do you mean dress out? What does that mean? You got to take off the prison clothes and put on like oh. a sweatsuit. So, you know, my lawyers came in there. They arguing with the COs and, you know, the correctional officers. So eventually she dressed out and um, I was able to get out. And I just remember, um, I just like, man, just get me out of here. Like, I don't want to like stand on the grounds and make this long speech. And I just want to get to my mother's house and eat and take a shower, you know.
0: You've been in prison for 20 years, and the only thing you wanted to do was get to your mom's house and have a home-cooked meal and take a shower. Those things that we take for
1: granted, that's all you wanted. And then when I eat the food, I didn't even like it. And I was like, damn, all these years I've been waiting for mom's food. Like, mom's, I didn't realize she had got older and she didn't season her food like that no more. And it was like a realization, like, damn, like, my mom's just older now. You know, and I just remember, like, leaving my mother's house that night and going to my apartment um, and was just in the passenger seat riding through the city. They had changed. I, but I remember it was strange because the, the infrastructure changed in D.C. with gentrification, but I remember I had a feeling like I never left. And I remember telling people, like, look, I just want to get out. I don't want to party cuz I don't smoke and drink. I don't I said listen. Just give me my MacBook and my iPhone and I'm going to work. Mm-hmm. And I remember that's the first night I just was like setting up my LinkedIn, my Twitter, my my Facebook, my Instagram and like I'm just going to work. From that point on to to now, I remember people constantly tell me like you know, you need to pace yourself. You don't want to burn out and I'm like what are you talking about? Yeah, I gotta get it. Like what you yeah. what, it's time. Right it's now is
0: the time. Then we have the pandemic, unbeknownst to everybody in the world, You're yourself right. included. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody would have said, When you get out, the world's gonna shut down about a year later, mm-hmm. um, what does that look like for you? What will you do? Um, and it for you was able to birth something very special, which is the art that you talked about. You start painting and does it come natural to you?
1: Yeah. Um. The thing was is that so I got out for a year and I remember saying I used to tell guys always in prison. Anybody know me like social capital, social capital, social capital. Don't worry about the money. Worry about the people. Right. Mm-hmm. So now, And my plan was like my first year, I'm not I'm not worried about building up a big cash reserve. I just want to build up a I want to be rich in people, so the first year I um, had the opportunity to get a couple of fellowships, um, and I started doing these spoken word performances. Yeah, I started like putting poetry on top of photos, and we worked with uh, Kim Kardashian. She helped um, get my my childhood friend out, and like I had all of this momentum. I was doing this performance art, and stuff was just building. And I said, "Okay, the next year, I'm gonna monetize." Right and just build out so I can get me a house. And then the quarantine came, like, right at the one-year mark. I got out March 21st. March 2020, we locked down. So all of my performances got canceled. All my sources of revenue were done. And I just remember, like, okay, I'm going to start painting. Because I got into visual art through listening to Jay-Z, rapper Boboski, and then I read an article on Basquiat in prison in the Wall Street Journal. And that's when, through me seeing he was black, someone that looked like me, then I started reading like Picasso and Rembrandt because I never like sought the visual world because I feel sure. like it didn't include people that looked like me. Correct. And then I, I got out and I would go to the museums and the galleries. I'm like, I really don't like a lot of this stuff. And I really felt like it had to be people who wanted the type of art that I wanted to see in their homes, in their galleries and museums. So when the quarantine came, I had the moment to be still. And me, from my perspective, versus people that had never been confined, confinement is all I know. While the rest of us were losing our minds, not right. I, I would say the
0: majority of people, right? The, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of people were, We're frustrated with being in the house. When can we get out? This was you at your natural state in terms of what you had been experiencing the previous 20 years of your life.
1: In prison, when I'm locked down, I don't have a woman, so I'm lonely. I don't have a TV. I don't have a smartphone. I don't have a laptop. I don't have streaming networks, right? I don't have a backyard. I don't have a basement, right? I'm in a cell with another human being uh with a toilet right there at the head of my bed. I'm smelling his yarn, his discreetness, his gas. Yeah. So for me in society, I had a basement, a backyard, a laptop, widescreen TVs, and I had time to be still. And I'm used to being confined. Like this, when we go on lockdowns, this is when I create the best. So for me, how I looked at it was like, the entire world is locked down. So I'm gonna have the opportunity to meet the Curry champions of the world because they're (laughs) they're bored. This is your time to reach them. And by me uh, studying finance and business and marketing for 22 years through studying the Wall Street Journal and Black Enterprise and publications like that, even though I shifted to this new industry of visual art, I understand human psychology and I understand business 101, which I really got from the streets. Right, which is essentially the hustle, right? It's the hustle. I have experience of building a self-enterprise since the age of 12 under high stress environments. Right, right, right. So me being in a house from a quarantine, from a virus, I'm like, I'm used to dealing with real threats. Yeah. Not to say that the coronavirus wasn't real. I get what you're saying. So I thrived. I thrived under that. Under that um, and I was able to create these things that added um, intellectual and, and visual aesthetic to people's lives people was really vibrating with the paints because they were in a dark place. And I was just so happy. My wife was pregnant. You know, I, you know, I just got married. We had a house. I never had a child before. Like, I, I never had someone to hold, you know? So, like, to have that, that partner, that balance, I really felt like, because my wife was the one who taught me how to paint. I didn't know how to paint. So a lot of times, the women never get the credit. How did she teach you? I guess she took arts and crafts classes before, so I just went and bought some paint and just was like put the brush in. And she was like, "No, you got to wet the brush." Then obviously, then she taught me like you can make colors, like you know, uh, uh, this color black and white makes gray. This and this makes on. I had no idea of colors or anything.
0: But being the student that you are, you once you once you knew that's this is what you were going to do, you went hard and you studied right away. This is a beautiful story. This is a love story. I can't wait till we do it in Hollywood, and I'm going to be watching. My, I, I cannot wait. This is a beautiful story. You have really um, opened my eyes to a lot of things that I already was aware of. But even talking about COVID, COVID really was an opportunity. It's still happening, right? Pandemic mm-hmm. is still here. I just want to be clear, but in the initial stages, it was an opportunity for people to, to, to what they say, casually make lemonade out of lemons to really find out what your hustle is. It happened for me in the same way, but clearly different. But I had left ESPN in, in February of 2020. And then in March of 2020, I was like, oh, I'm about to, I'm about to show that I can really hustle. I got to show this world what I'm really about. And and for you to say you thrived in that environment makes perfect sense. What a beautiful uh, relationship you were able to have because you were having a lot of first marriage, relationships, baby, bills. all these bills. You were, everything was a first for you during a time when the first for us, the society was being locked up, being in the house. You're like, that's not a first for me. Okay, wait, when do you find out that people are like, I'm going to put you in a, put you in a gallery with Basquiat. I'm going to put you in a gallery with Warhol. Like I want you to be
1: among those. So what happened was, um, I figured out the the gallery, museum, art dealer pipeline. And I just started reaching out to all of these galleries. I learned how you had to package it with your artist statement, your bio, your inventory report, your CV. And um no, 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 no. Everybody, no, 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 no. Christ. And I kept a list of Every gallery that said no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a Google sheet, and George Floyd was murdered, mm-hmm. and then the gallery in New Orleans, a black gallery, was like, "Well, we want to sign it. Mm-hmm. And then one day, um, I was walking to Georgetown. I was, I had some pants to tell it, and my wife and I. We wanted. It was during the pandemic, but Kennedy Center and DC had an outside venue, and. I was like, well, let's catch the Uber. my wife was like, no, let's walk. Listen to my wife. Always good to listen. So we walked and we saw a gallery in Georgetown. And I was like, I never saw this gallery before because it was right there on the same block where I get my suits from. I said, let's go in here. So we went in there. We met the lady who was the director, Jenny, and I bought a book and we talked. And she said, well, you an artist? I'm like, yes. Yeah. She said, I'll come do a studio visit. visit. Just email me your stuff. So I emailed her my stuff, and true to word, she came, did a studio visit two weeks later, and then like 10, 15 minutes after she left my studio, she said, uh, she called me, she was like, are you going to be in town Thursday? I'm like, yeah. She said, well, the owner of the gallery want to meet you. We want to fly down and meet you. Him and I met. He's like, look, I know you've been doing stuff all your life on your own. He was like, I just want you to Come to New York. I'll put you and your family up. I'll pay for the your space. I'll pay for your studio. I just want you to paint. I don't want you to focus on marketing, selling. Just paint, and and that's what I did. And and I painted. And um, and I remember he was telling me like, we well, we have an eighteen month to two year plan to see if it's a market for your work. He said, I don't know if it's a market for your work. And I just remember the first month we did, like, a quarter million. And then the second month, a quarter million. And then it's just like, it's just from that point on. And he has galleries in um, Palm Beach, New York, D.C., Boston, and Nantucket. And just through my relationship with him, um, it kind of scaled prepared to wear set today. Um having the opportunity to exhibit in museums and I just constantly meet people and people like the work and now I'm getting into fashion, my art dealer, he don't like that. He feel like it's taken away from my paintings. But um just growing up
0: You gotta explore all the creative sides that you have though. You have yeah. to. I'm you can't do like you. And on top of that, like I've been locked up for twenty years. Yeah. Like let me let me explore everything, every opportunity that has has missed me during the time in which I was not here. Let me explore it all. You should explore it all. Like you already know that. What do you feel? Everything, everything. You legit made me drop like three thug tears because that story gives me chills. I know it gives everybody chills, but it is it is beautiful. You you answered it in a lot of ways, what's next for you is everything. But if someone is listening to this, what was your motivation to keep going during those 20 years? Because while even though you were writing, you started your own publishing company and you were doing everything, was there ever a time where you were just like, I'm never getting out of here? Year 10, I'm never getting out of here.
1: I met my wife in 2008. And for 11 years from that point on, And she was like, every year you said you was getting out. You know, and every year I believed it. Every year. I never, I've never believed. I didn't, I'm a very intuitive person. Um, A visionary and someone who feels. I'm open up to feeling. And I just never felt like that was my destiny. Mm -hmm. You know, I always felt like it's a reason why I'm sitting in this corner reading these Wall Street journals. <laughs> it's not luck or coincidence. I'm not doing this by chance. It's, I'm reading about these these people, places, and things because this is my destiny. Like, I would have some days where I'm like, man, I'm just tired of fighting. I just want to just sit down and watch reality TV like everybody else and not work out. And, and that's what I would do. And I would get so bored. I'm like, I can't. Just do nothing like it's it's not my nature. So for me, what kept me going was definitely love. Mm-hmm. I, I love I love the shit out of myself, and it was also a sense of a purpose because I felt like it wasn't just about me. I I knew that I was being used as a tool, mm-hmm. and I would be in the galleries, and I knew it wasn't about no egotistical attachment to my legacy it was more about my people mm-hmm. like I just didn't want another mother to go through what my mother went through right I didn't mm-hmm. want another child to go through what I went through and so I under I understood my assignment and I embraced my assignment and I understood and I had accountability I realized like no you did start selling drugs and you did engage in gun violence as a kid so in some form of you have even though you might not be guilty of this, yeah. You have to have that accountability correct to sit with, with your decisions. But you can transcend your decisions and like a lotus, you can emerge from the mud and come off the water and just be um, aesthetically pleasing to the world in so many different ways. So for me, that's what just kept me going. I just I just had that deep love for myself and I I love my people. So much that I do is motivated by my love for my people mm-hmm. because like our stories don't get told. We don't have proper mentorship information. It's because a lot of historical injustices that have been done to us that why we have such low expectations and low um, outlooks on life. So my thing is that I want to use, I am going to use my life to show someone, because I didn't have that when I was a 16 year old, when I first came to prison, I had to read Malcolm X, mm-hmm. but Malcolm X wasn't relevant to the cracker. Right. And so now I, I want to have that film, that book, those clothes, those shoes where tell the, the story yeah. to tell the story to all people, you know, because it's not just going to be our people that get us out of this mess. Like Everybody needs to know our story. And more importantly, understand in it, believe it, and see
0: what I think you said, and you say it so very casually. We can overcome bad decisions. We can transcend yeah. poor decisions. We can transcend we can transcend anything if we put our mind to it. Um Helene Flowers, you have been a blessing, and I really appreciate you. Uh, I, 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 and I love how honest you are. You are um arguably someone who is visually being vulnerable and it's rare in the black community, more specifically rare for black men to talk about feelings and, and and what it looks like. But it is your strength and it is the ability in which I think people are drawn to you. So continue. And I appreciate you for being here on the prompt. but it means a lot to me. So today's podcast for me uh, felt very special and very sentimental. Normally, I give you all takeaways. Um, I usually do three. Uh, Today, I will only do one. And Halim said something to me that hit my heart and really registered, which was, you can transcend your decisions. In his case, as a young kid, 12 years old, deciding to sell drugs, uh, ultimately living a lifestyle that would lead to prison and or death. At 16 years old, he was tried as an adult, as an accomplice for murder. He was sentenced to two life sentences. 60-plus years at 16 years old. He was a child. He made bad decisions as a child. And society, in essence, tried to throw him away. And his biggest takeaway while being incarcerated for 20-some-odd years was that you can transcend your decisions. We all make bad decisions. We all make choices in which we thought, ah, I regret that. I want to do that over. But when we do get that second opportunity, what do we do with it? And he clearly was chosen to be that special one. He is a perfect example of what a brown print is and what a comeback is. I'm so honored that he decided to bless us with his story. And I hope that you all can remember, you can transcend your decisions so that's it for this week's episode of the brown print let's keep this conversation going online that's where you can keep it a buck as the kids say follow us on instagram at the brown print podcast or on twitter at brown print pod follow me carrie champion on ig and twitter just at my name carrie champion and if you enjoyed this episode which i'm sure you will share it with your friends and family and help spread the word we'd greatly appreciate it also if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review only positive reviews please the brown print is a gallery media
1: group original production